and welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. When Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, was released in 1964, the Pentagon was, to say the least, a bit mortified. Of course, they knew about the film before it even started shooting, and in 1963, the Air Force's Strategic Air Command began filming a response titled SAC Command Post. There is only world peace where there is power to preserve order among nations. And the retaliatory power of the Strategic Air Command of the United States Air Force is the greatest deterrent to general war there is in the world today. Its nuclear-armed bombers and missiles stand ready to counterattack any aggressor unwise enough to start a general war among the nations of our world. This 17-minute propaganda film was never screened publicly in the 1960s and was only declassified in 2010. While it may seem like a corny relic of our Cold War past, there's a lot that hasn't changed. As Andrew Coburn reveals in his article, How to Start a Nuclear War, which appears in the August issue, many of the protocols in place for authorizing a nuclear strike don't even work in practice a lot of the time the U.S. nuclear arsenal is still on hair-trigger alert. Mutually assured destruction, or MAD, is still policy. And yes, a lone fighter pilot really could start World War III. I spoke with Coburn over the phone earlier this week about the issues raised in his article. Here's our conversation. Reading this piece again... (laughs) I didn't really have too many questions, just more of a sense of this incredible fear because over and over it just seems that the nature of nuclear weapons are imprecision and danger and that if they do work, which seems really unlikely, you know, because they're untested and, uh, you know, there's a lot of military hardware that does not work. Right. It led me to it led me to wonder, you know, what would the aftermath of a U.S. strike look like? given the fact that the payloads and the number of missiles are now so great? Well, you know, the short answer, the, the honest answer is we don't exactly know mm. because of what you mentioned is the system is never tested. You know, little components are tested, but a system is only properly tested if you test the whole thing. So right. as I mentioned in the article we don't really know for sure if the weapons would actually explode. They probably would, a large proportion of them probably would, which we don't, but we don't know which ones. Um, there's an element I didn't have room to mention in the piece, which is the fuses on the weapons, which are, again, that's a whole sort of techno subculture in, the, in weapons of fuses. You know, you can go on for several hours about this on conventional weapons. Where even there, where you can test them, there's a lot of problems, and it would certainly be the case in nuclear weapons, and so on and so forth. The, the, you know, mm-hmm. they've never, I'm glad to say, tested a missile with a, a nuclear warhead that explodes when it gets to its target. Um, so for all those reasons, you know, as I say in the piece, every everything about nuclear war is uncertain. That being said, mm-hmm. of course, we can be assured that the level of destruction would be enormous. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, mm-hmm. It is so absurd to talk about, you know, sort of multiple strikes when just one, let's just look at one nuclear incident, not a nuclear explosion, uh, explosion, but Fukushima 
the Japanese mm-hmm. nuclear reactors, which, you know, devastated a huge chunk of Japan. So, you know, the, the potential degree of destruction, even allowing for all the screw-ups that I've, I've, I've mentioned, is, <laughs> is beyond imagination, really, or almost beyond imagination, certainly beyond calculation. Again, because these are untested, what is there sort of a measurable probability of like these things are on their way to the destination, wherever it might be, and they go off over part of the U.S.? I mean, is that something that is accounted for or is it just bad PR to think to think about that stuff? Let's take a very minimal thing Um, among the scenarios discussed in you know the relevant circles for years was what they called the cheap shot which would be mm. the russians sort of initiating hostilities by firing a missile from a submarine off the east coast nuclear russian nuclear submarines uh, generally patrol somewhere west of bermuda so not too far mm. away and this thing would be programmed to go straight up high very high in the atmosphere and explode high up with a, an enhanced EMP warhead, meaning it would give off a, you know, a boosted, an extra powerful electromagnetic pulse. And what that mm-hmm. does is knock out all electronic communications and all radars across mm-hmm. a huge swatch of the United States. So right away, you know, even with just one, one explosion of that kind, suddenly our, you know, our, basically our civilization our economy and you know disappears goes up mm-hmm. <laughs> disappears in a, pra- in a flash um because you know you and i couldn't be talking you know there'd be no communication uh, except i don't think anyone you know it's sort of so many i mean like we could spend hours discussing all the ramifications of that but it would be mm-hmm. and that would be just the start so uh, you know again when i get so angry when people you know talk about the sort of mechanics of nuclear war and you know this you know with a multi, with a limited nuclear strike and maybe you know wouldn't be an all-out nuclear war so it wouldn't be quite so bad i mean anything any use of a nuclear weapon would be yeah unbelievably destructive that hedging is so dangerous and there's no other way to describe it it's just like inhumane and dangerous um and I mean, it's often noted that the death penalty does not deter murder. And it seems like the mutually assured destruction has only encouraged the development of worse and worse and worse weapons. Um, are there any instances of this approach actually working to deter anything in in, in war ever? Well, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, I would say no. Um, I mean, just sticking with the nuclear era for you know forever and ever we were told i guess we still are that the u.s nuclear umbrella uh over nato protects europe certainly we used to say that and they used to say that in the cold war um right. and you know the notion if the russians you know um, attacked uh, attacked in europe and attacked germany then the u.s would you know respond with nuclear weapons and blow up russia the world would blow up. So it was always kind of an an Mm -hmm. odd notion. Still, that that argument is still being promoted, um, even in in the circumstances of today. But in fact, as I mentioned in the piece, there was this interesting exercise 
carried out shortly after the Cold War ended in the early 90s when on a Defense Department contract, a bunch of researchers went to Russia and interviewed a bunch of high up uh, officials, people who had been high up in the Soviet military system about you know what mm. had been going through their heads all this time. Um, and when asked about, well, what, you know, what about you know, your plans to attack Western Europe? They said, the idea never crossed our minds, you know, because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, why would we want to do that? Uh, you know, we start a right. horrible war, you know, you know, barely recovered from World War Two. So the whole premise of, you know, deterrence, which was this is a fundamental sort of part of the whole deterrence argument was completely, you know, invalid. I can't think of an example. I mean, people may cite some, but I must say it's always taken for granted. But as you mentioned, with the death penalty, a very good example, it doesn't really apply. Yeah, I mean, it just seems that there are certain situations because, you know, we're we're all people. The way in which we, you know, we get information from the world around us is not always as much as we would like to think it is flawless, we, at the end of the day, we're still people and we're guided by emotion. And if something really has to happen, we feel like something really has to happen. It doesn't matter that there is a penalty. There is an extreme penalty for it. Is there a way to improve the chain of approval so that the person at the top doesn't necessarily have to be like a philosopher king uh, to prevent the end of the the world, basically, because it just seems like there are these gestures toward it, which you talk about in your piece. But that seems mostly like PR, because no one wants to say. They certainly <laughs> are, yes. I mean, you could, um, the most obvious and immediate thing to do is to take these weapons off alert. If you're, if you're very really, if they really expect there to be a, you know, a, a bolt from the blue attack from mm-hmm the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians. I mean, bizarre concept. You know, they have these nuclear submarines, uh, uh, ballistic missile submarines, which are undetectable, um, everyone Mm -hmm. assures me. Um, And, you know, they can always fire back and blow up the other side if they feel like it. So there's absolutely no reason to have weapons on instant alert. And there's no reason to have this launch under attack presumption. so that, for a start, you can do that. I mean, and the, you know, the most obvious way to do that and the simplest is to take the warheads off the missiles. There's no right. real need. And beyond that, actually, there's no actual need to have this enormous force of, uh, of land-based missiles. Um, you know, because you know, it's important to understand that this whole scenario, it already depends on the land-based missiles because the reason we have this, to my mind, completely insane launch under attack policy is to protect the land-based missiles. You know, the Russian missiles are coming. Oh, my God, you've got six minutes or whatever it is to fire the land-based missiles before they get the silos get hit. So if you don't, you know, you can easily solve the problem by getting rid of the land-based missiles. And then you don't have to be in such a big hurry to blow up the world. Right. No, I was going to ask, I mean, are there other types of missiles that could possibly trigger a launch under attack situation? Because, again, it seems like these organizations that are monitoring it oftentimes don't have the right information or the information is ambiguous. And there is this horrible 
option. I mean, you talk very interestingly about how there was almost a nuclear exchange, let's say, on 9-11, because no one could talk to George W. Bush. And certain things were happening that really signaled that this is the end. Yeah, I mean, it's a, well, that was a very good example. I mean, to go to that, the, uh, you know, here we have this system on which billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent over the years, which was designed mm-hmm. so that, you know, the president, the, the nuclear monarch, is in total access to information and everything is under control. Mm-hmm. So that if, you know, if we're threatened with a nuclear Pearl Harbor, you know, he's ready to respond and so on and so forth. And that also, if, God forbid, the president is, you know, the nuclear attack gets him, that the chain of command will pass seamlessly to down a long line of succession through the cabinet, mm-hmm. ending up with, I think, the secretary of education, as I say, the secretary of education. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, this was put to the test on 9-11 and it completely fell apart. But beyond that, as it so happened, uh, as you mentioned, they, there had been scheduled for that day by strategic command a nuclear exercise, which for some right. bizarre reason involves having real live nuclear bombs being loaded on bombers and, you know, littering the runways, which the Russians noticed happening. And yeah. they also noticed that the head of the, it was an on an order from the head of the North American Air Defense Command, in response to the terrorist attack, his immediate response was to order a heightened level of nuclear alert as if we were under nuclear attack which thankfully we weren't whereupon which the russians picked up for their satellites uh or whatever their intelligence so putin wanted to call trump uh, sorry bush to ask what was going on i mean you know on the hotline my god are you going to attack us what what is you know are we on the brink of nuclear war but it couldn't get through because despite this multi-billion dollar system built you know, over the years, it couldn't actually get a phone call through to Air Force One. I mean, it's unbelievable. So it's a, yeah. so that whole, the, the, the kernel, the, you know, the central component of the whole plan for nuclear war fell apart immediately, thanks to Osama bin Laden. Right. You also talk in your piece about how even in tests, it doesn't always work. The people who need to be there aren't always there. And more to the point that if there was, you know, Donald Trump in a fit of rage or because he just feels like it, decides to launch nukes at whoever, it takes somebody there to say, excuse me, Mr. President, this is wrong. And that seems it just seems unrealistic because look at Iraq. That was a situation. It's worse yeah. than that. Oh, way worse. <laughs> because if Trump, you know, the, you know, people have been worried about this once you had Trump in the White House and people got a good look at him. They thought, oh my God, this man has his finger on the nuclear button. In response to that, we've had two, essentially two statements from a former head of strategic command, General Kaler, and the, I think he's still the current head, he is, the current head of strategic command, General Hyten, when asked, one in a Senate hearing and the other in a sort of security forum, what will you do if the president, i.e. Trump, suddenly decides to launch a nuclear war? And they said, we would disobey him. You know, we would, it would, <laughs> we would stand in his way. Actually, Heighton didn't mm-hmm. quite even say that. He said, I would show him a way to do it legally, which I didn't find very reassuring. Um, no. But in fact, and that was sort of meant to be, we were all reassured that these responsible these four-star generals would, when, when called upon, would mutiny. 
which, again, doesn't sound like the way four-star generals normally behave, but anyway, would disobey a presidential order. But in fact, the way the system is organized, they have no say in the matter. They advise the president and they say, well, you know, you can blow up all of Russia or just part of it or, you know, (laughs) Russia and China or just China. They give the head of Stratcom gives him the options and tells him what he can do and what his force, the strategic nuclear force, is is ready to do. But the actual order, if Trump decided to say, well, that's very interesting, but here's what I'm going to do, and, you know, just order option one, which is blow up everything, um, Mm -hmm. then the order just goes through the White House military office um, to the command centers, which are of which there are about eight, and and off the... uh, and then it's pretty much automatic. You know, the missiles fly, right? Uh, which is really terrifying. Yeah. So much of nuclear weaponry that has been accumulated is are literal remnants from the Cold War because so many of these warheads are being repaired and maintained that were made years and years and years ago, right? But there's also this, this problem where not just this Cold War mindset, but the mindset that the founding fathers wanted the president to have the ability to start a war. But in no way did they have a sense that there would be someday a weapon that could wipe out all life on the planet Earth in, in, in minutes. Um, so I guess what sort of it's 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 absurd, but it 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 it's uh it again it comes up against this question of constitutional um you know literalists and this this feti- is this sometimes this fetishization of what the founding fathers wanted and then well of course they would want this well no the founding fathers were actually didn't even without <laughs> envisaging nuclear weapons which would obviously would have been hard for them to do they were pretty nervous about giving the president the start of war anyway they. They were yeah. firmly of the belief that this was up to Congress and certainly should be uh, should be done without Congress's assent. Well, we've sort of tossed that overboard in recent years. I mean, we have the War Powers Act, but they seem to be able to launch wars willy-nilly. This whole idea, I mean, I find it, people don't, I think it's become so, it's chilling the way it's become accepted that yeah. when a president is inaugurated, as I say in the piece, at that very moment, um, a whole new set of codes become active that permit him to blow up the world. It's like, it's like you know, when they crown a king or queen in, in Britain, they sort of mm-hmm. pour some oil on his or her head. Uh, it's the holy oil. That's all sanctifies that they're now king uh, mm-hmm. or queen. And it's like, I find that sort of this, it's, it's this moment, is, you know, at 12 noon, on inauguration day, you know, this unbelievable authority is vested in this character. is <laughs> um, uh, sort of staggering. I mean, if you said to someone, you know, before the nuclear age, if you said we were able to go over, you know, talk to someone, you know, 100 years ago and say, by the way, this is the way things work these days, they wouldn't believe it. Uh, you know, people, it's one of those things where this unbelievable situation you know, people have sort of come to accept. Furthermore, I've been going back to an earlier part of your question. They, you know, for years and years, I used to think that in the Cold War, you know, the point of the Cold War was to give each, the military and the military industrial complex on on each side, 
an excuse to do what they were doing, to sort of get more money and build more weapons and, you know, have a better life for themselves at the expense of the rest of us. And I thought, I used to think that, well, if that went, you know, if, if one side gave up, then the whole thing would sort of come to an end. But I was completely wrong. I mean, the Russians gave up, the Soviet Union collapsed, and we carried on. Let me give you an example. The, at the moment, the entire Russian defense budget, as much as we can calculate, nuclear and non-nuclear, amounts to about $62 billion. Our mm-hmm. defense budget went up by $82 billion, $82, $82 billion this yep. year. So it's kind of irrelevant for what the other side is doing. This, this machine, this sort of colossus carries on of its own accord. It, I used to think it needed some justification, but it doesn't. Do you have a sense of what that is going for? Because, you know, the Obama, the three plus two plan where it's like, well, we're not really going to make new nuclear weapons, but also we are. Um, What is this money even going towards? Well, it's really going for the profits of the Lockheed and Boeing and Raytheon corporations, Mm -hmm. I think, and all the rest of them. I mean, it's a great man, um, people today will have forgotten, uh, forgotten, Ernie Fitzgerald, who was a very, any day, a very famous Air Force whistleblower who blew the whistle on sort of, you know, scandals in the Air Force. And uh, he always used to say, he always used to say that the, the defense industry doesn't sell weapons, it sells costs. You know, that they mm-hmm. have a weapon, they say, okay, here's this program, it costs $100 million, and with their added on, you know, cost plus contracts so they're going to make 120 million dollars or whatever out of it it's i you know it's about money this is something that critics you know who talk like we do about the madness of it all i think don't often take into account i mean there is a rational basis for all this it's not a very sort Mm -hmm. of appealing one but it is the you know the prosperity of these contractors these corporations and these bureaucracies which sort of have a symbiotic relationship with each other. And there's no other way to understand it. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to understand why, for example, I mean, as a little, I mean, a sort of trite example I, I give in the piece, which is uh, we have the core of a nuclear weapon is a plutonium, the nuclear weapons that we have is a plutonium pit. It's a sort of, you know, mm-hmm. a sphere of plutonium, which is what kicks the whole thing off. We have some 14,000 of those in storage built up over the years of the Cold War. Nonetheless, we are proposing to spend ultimately some $40 billion to build more pits, which we have no conceivable use for. And it's just for the prosperity of the, in this case, the nuclear weapons labs, the whole nuclear weapons complex. You know, there's no other justification. I mean, I I can give you 100 examples of the way this operates, but otherwise... It's not that these people are completely crazy. It's, you know, that their their objectives are not what they say they are. I mean, they, maybe if you, I don't know if you waterboarded them, they might tell them, I think they tell themselves that they're really, this is for the greater prosperity or security of the nation or something, but the, it has to be, the fundamental incentive has to be money. There's no other way to understand it. As you're, you're pointing out, that disconnect seems so intense that you are dealing with technology that could end all life on earth possibly we don't know millions of innocent people lots of different things i mean the, there's also a moment in your piece where you talk about 
how during the Cold War, if the U.S. had quote unquote only hit urban spaces at Russia, all of Russia would have been wiped out. It's it's just it, again, it comes it comes back to this thing. It's just cognitive dissonance doesn't seem to kind of <laughs> hit on what's what's happening here because it's 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 um it's so dangerous. Well, right. I mean, the example it was the other way around actually that they. You know, the, originally the plan was to blow up everything, and then um, they, you know, people said, "Oh, that's can't we sort of moderate that a bit?" So there was this, you mm-hmm. know, these people worked out this withhold the cities withhold policy that the president would sort of hit military targets in Russia and not hit the cities, and then the Russians would say, "Okay, well, we won't hit your cities," and they'd both stop. I mean, right. um, and that sounded better, except that the nuclear planners, you know, the targeters in the basement and office airport space, thought, well, you know, they didn't like that uh, that kind of limit. So they they designed the target list so that even though theoretically they weren't going to hit the Soviet cities, they actually were. They were going to hit all around them. So as the guy who investigated this has said, you know, every every Soviet city would have been obliter- obliterated. Um, I mean, it's another thing in my piece, which is a point I'd like to make in the piece, which is how how out of control it's always been, or at least not controlled by the, uh, certainly not by the president. I mean, there's this presumption, yeah. there's this, this iron, ironclad command and control system that, you know, they can only be fired with the president's approval uh, when he gives the codes and, you know, no one else would think about it. In the past, certainly, the authority to launch was was continually delegated downwards. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg, in his most recent and extremely chilling book, Dean's Doomsday, which I urge everyone to read, he um, you know, he investigated this in 59 or 60, I think, and he found that actually the commander of a fighter base in South Korea basically had the means, if he felt like it, to launch a nuclear war or even the individual pilots, um, you know, that everyone, you know, there's always, well, we're supposing the command, you know, supposing we live, the command is taken out, supposing the president is taken out, then the, um, you know, the commander in the Pacific, the Pacific commander, uh, he had the authority. But supposing he can't communicate and he's, you know, out of the game, well, the commander of the Western Pacific fleet uh, had the authority. But supposing can't get through to him, you know, then it goes, you know, down and down and down, so anyone could do it. And then uh, Fred Kaplan, in his very shocking book, Wizards of Armageddon, which was about the early nuclear strategist, he, uh, which again, everyone should read, the, uh, hmm. he gives an example of, um, in 1958, uh, an emissary who was doing an investigation of nuclear command, and he goes to meet, see the head of the Strategic Air Command and says... Um, you know, what happens if the Russians do a surprise attack? And the guy, General LeMay said, well, that's not going to happen because I've got spy planes on his own initiative over Russia. And if they, see, think the, if they show signs the Russians are up to something, I'm, you know, I'm going to hit them first. And the Washington guy from Washington says, but that's not, you know, that's not policy. And he, the general says, I don't care. That's my policy and I'm going to do it. The degree to which things are not as they seem is always staggering. I find it's one of the most sort of breathtaking things I discovered when going into all this. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is 
remnants of or repurposed remnants of the Cold War, what is even being launched at of a country? Is it totally dependent on its position or is it or is there even a sense of that? Well, it's adapted. They've adapted to the post-Cold War thing in a way by extending it, by making it more, giving a greater role to the, you'd think at the end of the Cold War, the system, you know, would have been collapsed, you know, in, in ways like, as I suggested, you know, taking, taking things off, off alert. And in a way, you know, in early years, that did seem to be happening. I mean, they took the bombers off alert. They used to have, you know, bombers in the air all the time. Um, and they stopped that and they stopped, they didn't have crews sleeping beside the, bombers anymore on the ground um but then on the other hand um in the 1990s for example under clinton was a nuclear posture review which basically said there's a role for nuclear weapons if if other weapons are being employed against us like chemical or biological in other words Mm -hmm. it was like expanding the role of nuclear weapons and now as i mentioned the piece there's this whole I think entirely sort of misplaced hysteria about hypersonic weapons. I mean, the whole, again, right. without going into the technical details too much, you know, a ballistic missile, if you see it taking off, you basically know where it's going. It's a sort of pretty predictable trajectory. The whole notion of these hypersonic weapons without going into the how they're meant to work is, you know, they can change course. You know, you can't wait for them to take off and know where they're going you might have to sort of, you know, hit them before they take off or, um, right. you know, act on intelligence, which I think, as I talk about in the piece, I think has made things much more dangerous. And as again, as right. I mentioned in the article, in the days of the Cold War, the old safe, predictable Cold War, never, despite this old, you know, alarm system, never once did anyone have to wake up, actually wake up the president to say the missiles are on their way and, you know, you've got a few minutes to decide what to do. And there was a you know, famous incident uh, under President Carter when Brzezinski, Zbigniew Brzezinski, his national security mm-hmm. advisor, got that call that the missiles were on the way. And he was about to wake up President Carter. It was like in the middle of the night. And then got another call saying, no, false alarm. Someone fed the wrong tape into a training tape into the, into the computer. Um, <sighs> but that's, there may be other instances we don't know about, but I, but anyway, you know, I'm reliably informed that they never never had to tell the president. Since the end of the Cold War, it's happened numerous times. You know, once this thing I've, um, you know, as I talk about the piece, they streamlined the system so that the head of strategic command gets the alert himself sort of right away. He calls the president and discusses. And certainly, and probably under Trump, but certainly under Bush and Obama, there were numerous occasions when the head of strategic command was on the phone to the president talking about a real threat, not just an exercise. Yeah, it's just kind of unbelievable. I mean, do you feel like the changing, our changing relationship to war as sort of a discrete event versus something that happens all the time that has been going on since 2001, always in the background in multiple parts of the world that maybe we're not even really aware of. Do you feel like that also sort of reduces yeah. the public's urgency to sort of... That's a great point. I mean, it's, 
I think that's right. We've become accustomed to it. I mean, we don't have to pay for it in the extent well, we do, of course, we will. But I mean, right. it's not like we've suddenly got an extra war tax, even when, you know, in 2001, I mean, I think, you know, Bush said we were going to war. By the way, he was cutting our taxes. You know, it was the, it's war, it's war light. Mm-hmm. Would we at the same time, especially now with, you know, so-called Russia gate, you know, we have this mounting hysteria about Russia, which is sort of pumped up, I think, very dangerously, mm-hmm. actually by the very sort of factions who used to be against this sort of thing, the liberal. Right. I think that's extremely dangerous. You know, um, I'll give you a little example, which sort of has to do with this, which is uh, Trump just signed, he went to Fort Drum, upstate New York, and signed the national defense, uh, the the authorization bill for the defense budget. The greatest Mm -hmm. defense budget, I mean, out of outside World War II, I think, uh, in our history, $717 billion. And it was the Congress had, you know, nicely had christened this the John McCain Defense Authorization <laughs> Act in you know, commemoration of the beloved Senator McCain. So yes. Trump, because he hates McCain, in his speech, didn't mention, never once said, called it the John McCain Act, even though that's its official name. So instead of the media, I noticed almost uniformly, instead of saying, what are we doing with the $717 billion Defense Act? You know, why are we doing this? Oh, my God, you know, this is incredible that the Congress has waved through this unbelievable amount of money for what and how date. And, we, you know, it's got nuclear weapons, which are much closer to conventional weapons. And how de- I mean, that, no one mentioned that in their commentary. It was just, oh, how it was all about how mean Trump had been not to pay tribute to John McCain, you know, who, by the way, never met a war he didn't like. Yeah. And he was very, for a long time, pushing to bomb Iran and... I mean, I think it's appropriate to name it after in memory of John McCain or whatever. Not for everyone to wag their fingers and, you know. Go, oh, I know. <laughs> How mean of Trump not to pay tribute to our beloved senator. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Again, it shows that very large disconnect that it's like, oh, this is, you know, the hot gossip side of this. What happened on this date is more important than what does this actually mean for people being able to survive and live in the world? But I wanted to ask, in your mind, what aside from, you know, an accident could lead to this dismantlement of nuclear weapons? Or is it not feasible? Uh, I have to believe it is. You know, I mean, the it's depressing how uninterested people are in the notion I mean, another near miss. I mean, God forbid we should have one. But, um, well, I think it has to be a citizen's movement. You know, it has to be mm-hmm. people actually being forced to think about this and to demand of the representatives of the Congress of whoever they vote for as president. This has to stop. And beyond that, you know, we people have to appreciate, you know, how dangerous it is that, you know, how much of this the country's economy, not just, you know, the fate of the world, but the, the economy and everything is, is dominated by, you know, the, the military-industrial complex. Um, mm-hmm. Even using that phrase is considered rather old-fashioned. Uh, actually, Eisenhower wanted to call it the military-industrial congressional complex, but then he thought he'd get into trouble with the Congress, so he took it out. Right. Um, <laughs> but, they, you know, that's, that, I think that is the root of the problem. People have to be, have to be woken up. I mean, you'd think they would be by now. 
And, you know, I know people like I quote in the piece, like General Lee Butler, who was, you know, he was head of strategic command. Man, he, you know, he really lived through it. He flew nuclear bombers. He knew everything. And he, you know, he just has argued passionately and very coherently for years that we have to abolish nuclear weapons. There was absolutely no justification for them at all. And again, he's become part of the background. You know, no one, no one pays a great deal of attention. It's it's very uh, sorry to sound so gloomy and depressing, but <laughs> uh, I do think okay, let's rally the troops. People, everyone has to wake up and realize this is you know the fate of the planet. I mean, look at global warming, climate change. You know, quite quite rightly, you know, excites you know great fervor and passion, and people you know really put a huge amount of energy into trying to sort of do something about it. It'd be very bad when the seas rise and drown New York or whatever's meant to happen. Um, but it's a lot worse if we're just reduced to a sort of cinder for something that can be easily stopped. You know, it's very, yeah. very hard, very, very, very hard to sort of dial back global temperatures. I mean, no one quite knows how to do it, even though we're mm-hmm. going to be sitting about doing that. It's very easy to take the warheads off of, you know, 400-minute man missiles. It can be done in a couple of days. And yet the threat posed by those missiles and by all the other missiles and bombs is so much greater and certainly so much more immediate than, you know, global warming. You'd think people should uh, give their attention to that. So that's what I'm demanding they do. The Harper's Podcast is produced and edited by Violet Luca. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. Visit harpers.org to subscribe.